Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. The Battle of Antietam remains the single bloodiest day in American history and is deeply chronicled in Scott Hartwig's new book, I Dread the Thought of the Place, The Battle of Antietam and the End of the Maryland Campaign. Join us on this week's PreserveCast for a very special, in-depth conversation with Scott Hartwig about this vital turning point that was the Battle of Antietam. We'll take a sneak peek into this new book, the research it took to write it, and how the Battle of Antietam shaped the American Civil War and the America we know today. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're thrilled to be talking with Civil War historian Scott Hartwig, um, former supervisory historian of the Gettysburg National Military Park. But for our purposes today, we're going to be talking about his new book on the Battle of Antietam, I Dread the Thought of the Place. Um, and we're going to be talking all about that work, and it's actually really a second volume um, in his Maryland campaign study. Um, and uh, be- before we get there, we like to get to know people a little bit. And uh, for those listening who are familiar with Scott's work or been on a tour, um, you 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 know that he's a, a Civil War historian. But let's dial it back a little bit, Scott. Where did you? Um, grow up, and I don't even know the answer to this, uh, even though I know you, what was your spark? What was the moment when you were like, you know what, I've got to get into Civil War history? (laughs) Um, I was born in Baltimore, but only lived there for five years. We lived kind of south of the city, and then we moved to um, Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, which was renowned because it was the Willow Grove Naval Air Station, which was the longest runway in the entire East Coast for a number of years. Um, It's just north of Philadelphia. I spent all of my growing up years waiting to leave. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I always wanted to live in the West. That's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in Montana or someplace like that. And then uh, when the time came to go to college, um, I was a an idiot in high school. I mean, just stupid, not a bad kid, but, but stupid. And I didn't apply myself until my senior year. So the only school that would accept me was university of Wyoming. And, uh, I always appreciate that from them. And it turned out that university of Wyoming had a, uh, renowned civil war scholar there named E.B. Long. E.B. Long was the research editor for Bruce Catton in his famous trilogy on the American Civil War, Never Call Retreat, Terrible Swift Sword. And um, he knew Catton really, really well. But I mean, even to this day, when I think back on E.B. Long, he probably was the most knowledgeable person in all facets of the Civil War that I've ever known. I mean, he could talk on, the only person that comes close to him is probably Ed Bars. Um, But he could talk on political, economic, military. I mean, he was really amazing. But I got interested in the Civil War because of the centennial. There was all sorts of stuff in the early 1960s in Life magazine and on the news about, you know, Bull Run and Antietam and Gettysburg and the wilderness and Atlanta and all the Civil War battles. And um, I I got the Airfix Civil War soldiers and I would set them up to, to refight the battles of the Civil War. And then, uh, when I started reading, my mom took me to the public library and told the librarian there that I was interested in the Civil War. And he told me to read these two books by Warren Hassler. I think it was Warren Hassler, Up Came Hill and The General to His Lady. And the one was about A.P. Hill and the other one was the letters of Dorsey Pender to his wife during the Civil War. And uh, that is a that is a unique <laughs> <laughs> recommendation i'm sorry like i sorry to interrupt there for a second but that i mean up came hill okay i can kind of wrap my head around that but the letters of dorsey oh, no. pender to his wife i mean I, you know the thing was, i don't I think loved... most of war historians have ever read that <laughs> i love the book it was a great book and it let you know the thing was that those like you always need a gateway book to kind of open right up. then i read i read Catton's trilogy right uh, you know, the Army of the Potomac trilogy. 
And the Army of the Potomac trilogy, I would have to say, is probably one of the things that um, started me down the road of always being interested in the Battle of Antietam because Patton's description of the Battle of Antietam, I mean, his description of every battle and the whole experience of the Army of the Potomac was unforgettable, but it was really unforgettable what he wrote about Antietam. And I, I just had a fascination with that. And, um, you know, I didn't really pursue anything when I went to college. Um, I took three different courses under E.B. Long, which taught me a lot about um, Civil War history and historiography and writing and doing historical research. And I mean, I thought I knew a lot. After I graduated from University of Wyoming, I learned as I got to Gettysburg that I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like I've, I've I've heard this joke before on other sort of Civil War podcasts is that you read one book and you think you know everything, and then you read two and you're like, man, I don't know any, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's the the more you read, the more you realize, like, I just this is this is pretty complex. It's and there's so much to know, and it just you you need to be humble about it. But I, um, you know, so I went to the University of Wyoming and then um, I was a, um, my major was in parks and recreation management, which at that time period was a really big thing. I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> I would have majored in history because I think history teaches you how to think analytically and it teaches you how to write. And you can use that in a lot of things that you do. There were a lot of courses I took in park and recreation that, that, that i Nobody pays any attention to the statistics that they had. then. But one of the things that did teach me about was interpretation and the National Park Service. So I figured that um, with my interest in the Civil War and I had a real interest in the mission of the Park Service because I had come up, uh, grown up in an era in which uh, a lot of young people wanted to make a difference and do something not to make money, but to... Um, you know, to serve their country in various ways. So mine would be working in the National Park Service and hopefully working at a historical park. So I ended up getting a seasonal job at Gettysburg in 1979. And uh, that was, you know, part of my initiation to, you really don't know very much. Because right. <laughs> some of the people who worked there did know a lot. And we're really like Greg Coco. They were really good historians and yeah. great interpreters. And um, but I also learned that um, that was something I loved doing. I loved studying history, but I also loved uh, talking about it with lay people who might not know anything about it and helping them to find value in these historical sites. What can you learn? What can you apply to your life? What can these people teach you about um, from their experiences that you can carry forth in your life? And um, so then I, I got a permanent job with the Park Service at the Eisenhower Historic Site because they opened that in 1980. And um, Eisenhower was very fascinating. I, I was I didn't necessarily enjoy working in a historic home. I like the I mean, the other thing was the battlefield just got so many visitor, visitors and the Eisenhower farm was kind of a more static experience. So I kept looking for the opportunity to get back to Gettysburg. And I did. I, I managed to get back to Gettysburg and um, spent actually spent my entire NPS career at Gettysburg, which was r relatively rare. And that, that is real. I mean, that's yeah. almost unheard of, particularly yeah. nowadays. Yeah. It is. And, and like I told people, I said, you know, because uh, I had a couple opportunities to go to another park. And my feeling was, where can I go that I'm going to have this many people to talk to and to also influence interpreters who are going to talk to them? I, I can't go anywhere else. I mean, this is the for many Americans, this is going to be their experience with the Civil War. And it might lead them to go to other places that they otherwise wouldn't go to because they didn't know anything about them. And um, and also, I had so many varied experiences at Gettysburg that it was kind of like I had different jobs through my whole experience working at Gettysburg. So and the commute was great. I mean, you know, 
That was about two miles. <laughs> yeah, you could almost walk if you had to. If it was, I rode my bike sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and so and you're right. I mean, you went from seasonal um, to park ranger to supervisory to at the very end, sort of overseeing the interpretation in the new museum or what was yeah. then a new museum. It's not. It's yeah, not right, quite so right. Quite so new anymore. They're gonna. <laughs> right. Um, but. Um, so, I mean, and, and left, left your imprint there and in, in, in many different ways. It's actually it's maybe perhaps a good sort of pivot here or a segue, which is, okay, so Gettysburg is this great place. It's the pinnacle. Why would you ever go anywhere else? Says the man who writes the two-volume, 2,000-page you know, series on Antietam. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> The, I, the story is one day I was at the information desk at the old Cyclorama Center, and uh, it was Greg Coco and another fellow named Paul Shevchek. And we were it was a slow day, and we were talking about battles of the Civil War, campaigns of the Civil War that really hadn't been covered very extensively. And um, I said, you know, Antietam hasn't been. I mean, because at that point, it was right before Stephen Sears' book on Antietam came out. So the only two books on Antietam dedicated to Antietam was um, Jim Murphy's Gleam of Bayonets, which came out, I think, in 62, and Francis Palfrey's uh, The Antietam in Fredericksburg, and Palfrey was a veteran of the battle. <laughs> he wrote that in like 1887. Right. And other than that, there was Stackpole's Cedar Mountain to Antietam, which was about an entire series of campaigns and wasn't a really great book. Um, and that was it. There wasn't anything on Antietam. So I kind of flippantly said at that point, I said, I'm going to write a book on Antietam. And um, I then set out to try to do that and wrote this whole manuscript by hand. Uh, because at that time period, I didn't have a typewriter at home. Right. And there weren't computers that people had. I mean, this is the dark ages. <laughs> and uh, I finished it. And it was absolutely horrible. <laughs> and I realized, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, because I didn't, I didn't, because I had kids and stuff like that. I just never went on and got an advanced degree, which would have helped me a lot. I think that helps people a lot in learning how to you know, get, gain the skills that you need if you're going to write. So a lot of the things that I learned, I learned the hard way on how to do research. And then I restarted the whole project. And um, that was, that ended up resulting in two Antietam Creek, which was the campaign that leads up to the Battle of Antietam. And um, and then to, I dread the thought of the place, the Battle of Antietam and the end of the campaign. So um, it was a long learning curve. And um, I uh, I was kind of the tortoise. I just steadily pecked away at it. And uh, in the Park Service, it became kind of a joke, the first book. Because people were um, people were joking about Hartwig is writing the book on Antietam, <laughs> and you know, because I ran when I worked at Gettysburg, uh, part of my job was I also ran the Park Research Library, and um, I had dozens and dozens of people who came in there. They were going to write a book, and they all learned that researching, while it can be really difficult, is easier than writing writing the book, taking all the research that you've assembled and organizing it in a coherent fashion, in an interesting fashion, and then sitting down and actually writing it is really hard to do, ultimately. And most of them never finished it. So I think a lot of people thought Hartwig's going to be, <laughs> he's going to be one of them. And uh, I just kept hacking away. <laughs> and so the research really, I mean, in, in some ways was... I mean, how many, what, decades in the making? And then the writing is actually synthesizing it. How much time did that take to put this together? And to give people a context, it's just shy. This the second volume is just shy of about a thousand pages, right? Yeah, it's, uh, there's like 30 pages of stuff that are uh, kind of extraneous. It's about 970 pages. So, yeah, I, I like to keep it down below a thousand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, the research... I did a lot of research through the 80s and the 90s into the 2000s. Um, you know, I was always looking for things about Antietam. 
And I would do, I would sometimes do dedicated research trips. Like I went to the Virginia Historical Society. I went to uh, Dartmouth College because they had this huge Antietam collection of John Gould up there. This is before they put it on microfilm. I went to a, num a number of times to the um, Army Military History Institute or the Army Education Center, I think they call it today, in Carlisle. And near the War College, and uh, they had a phenomenal. They have a phenomenal collection, particularly Union accounts. And you know, I just over time just kept accumulating more and more material on uh, the campaign and on the battle. And then, um, you know, outlined what I wanted to tell the story I wanted to tell in the first volume. And then, um, you know, so each chapter you would outline. What do you want this chapter to be about? What's the story it's going to tell? Did you always know it was going to be two volumes? I pretty much did know it because uh, one of the things I really wanted to do in volume one is I wanted to tell the story of the Harpers Ferry operation and the Battle of South Mountain or the Battles of South Mountain in, in a depth that they hadn't been covered before. Because... Inevitably, what happens with people when they're writing a single volume on the Maryland campaign, the Battle of Antietam's the big, the big thing. Right. They're That's excited they, to get to that. They're like, man, they, I gotta, I gotta get to the creek, yeah. man. Yeah. So they they tend to um don't spend as much time on South Mountain and Harpers Ferry. And I thought, you know, if I'm gonna spend the time to do all this stuff, I want to do it right. I want to really tell the story. I want to under, I mean, some of this was just, I was just curious. I really wanted to know what had happened at Harper's Ferry. Um, how had the defense by the union forces been mismanaged so badly? How was the Confederate offensive coordinated so that it ended up being a successful operation? And um, I, I found that part of it really, really interesting I think sometimes people don't find an operation like Harpers Ferry interesting because there isn't there isn't a big bloody battle involved in it. It was more of a chess piece. It was more like a 19th or even earlier century uh, battle. And Jackson and the other commanders did a really good job in maneuvering their troops and putting the Federals in an untenable position where they had to surrender and lost very few men in the process. And that's the type of guys you want to. You want to serve on it, <laughs> you know, right. you, you don't want to be in the battle where you lose 82.6% of your men. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but that's the one people want to read about in various people. I mean, it is true. That's what people want to read about and, and they're interested. And so, um, you know, I, it's for people listening all across the country or the world for that matter. I know we have a lot of listeners in the UK, you know, but can you put and we've kind of jumped into it and, and sort of buried the lead, but put Antietam in context. How does this how does where is this and and why does it matter so much? Why did it matter so much to you to invest this much of your life in writing this thing? Well, I mean, to answer the last part of the question, um, the more I got into it, I just became interested in telling the story. In uh, as I say, in my forward to the book in getting down into the weeds of a civil war campaign. I wanted people to really kind of, if you read this, you have an under, kind of an understanding of what it was like. They're all different in their own respects, each campaign of the civil war, but they all have similarities as well. And uh, I did want to get into the psychological aspects of it and the morale aspects of it uh, that uh, afflicted soldiers in every operation in the civil war. Um, I just forgot. What was the first part of your question? Well, it just, I mean, Antietam. Why Antietam? Why does it yeah. matter? Where's the context of this battle? Yeah, the context of Antietam. The, within the war, yeah. Another thing that interested me about Antietam is that um, it's the first invasion of the North by the Army of Northern Virginia. Gettysburg campaign being the second invasion of the North. Now, the Confederates don't get into Pennsylvania in 1862. They certainly wanted to. Lee definitely wanted to go into Pennsylvania. and it it is a really pivotal moment in the story of the war because it's still a limited war even though we've had these horrifically bloody battles on the virginia peninsula at shiloh at um wilson's creek at second manassas it's still a limited war in that the war aim of the union is to preserve the union 
pockets to bring the seceding states back into the union and fighting a war to do that. And they've they've not deliberately not targeted slavery as a policy. But Lincoln has realized after the Peninsula campaign, that policy no longer is going to work. He the policy has to change. You can't ignore slavery in the war. I mean, because the other thing was uh, the Union Union field commanders were running into this problem everywhere they went into the South, everywhere they went. Uh, enslaved people were escaping and coming within their lines. And then these commanders were saying, what am I supposed to do legally? What am I supposed to do with them? And then you have Benjamin Butler, who says down in the Virginia Peninsula, they're contraband of war. I don't need to return them. And then that creates all these legal issues and so on. And we're moving towards you, you have to do something. You have to do something legally because the other thing is this is the entire foundation of the Southern economy. And they're fighting a war against you to secede, to destroy the United States of America and the whole concept of the government to create their own slaveholding republic. And if that's allowed to succeed, then the whole experiment that was started in 1776 is going to falter. So Lincoln finally comes around to the the conclusion. I, I say finally in that Lincoln always understood slavery was the cause of the war. He always understood that he wanted to do something about slavery, but he had to tread very carefully because he couldn't lose some of the border states, Kentucky particularly, and Missouri, uh, Maryland less so, but uh, he couldn't lose these border states if he took uh, a very bold action on slavery early in the war. He kind of had to negotiate with the border states to try to see if he could convince them to embark on compensated emancipation. If he could get that moving, then he could maybe start the ball rolling towards general emancipation. And it just didn't work. I mean, people, slavery was incredibly resilient. And the you know the notion some people have that slavery would have just eventually died out, I think, is complete nonsense. I mean, it was it was really deep- you think that that's nonsense? Oh, I do. I think it was deeply entrenched. They may have abolished some form of slavery, but they would have kept some type of slavery as long as they possibly could have, because it was financially certain people were benefiting tremendously from it, and they clung to it desperately, even in places that surprise you that people would cling to it. So Lincoln wants to um, make emancipation a major policy of the war. So he's he wants to issue an emancipation proclamation, but to issue the emancipation proclamation at the point in the war that we're approaching the Maryland campaign is problematic because now in the Eastern theater of the war, the Confederates have won these big victories at on the Virginia Peninsula. They drove the Army of the Potomac back to the James River They march north. They win a battle at Cedar Mountain. They defeat two Union armies and drive them into the fortifications of Washington at the Battle of Second Manassas. And now they're going to cross into Maryland. You're not winning this war. And if you issue an Emancipation Proclamation, you look like you're getting desperate to do anything to try to advance your war aims and keep the North in the war. So he has to have a military victory to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. And one of the things that's so interesting about the campaign is the general he's forced to turn to to deliver the victory is George McClellan, who doesn't believe in the Emancipation Policy. In fact, he's warned Lincoln in a letter down in the Virginia Peninsula, if you issued something like this, the armies might dissolve. And it would be really bad policy. And also, it's going to make the Confederates fight much harder. So you're just going to make the whole thing much worse. It's a really bad idea. Don't do it. I'm warning you because the army might mute me, right? So it's kind of, he doesn't say use those words, but he's kind of implying. So this is the guy, if you're Lincoln, because he has the confidence of the army. And you have to turn to to deliver this victory. And you still have, in September of 1862, you still have the prospect of the Europeans recognizing the Confederacy and trying to intervene in this war. So there's 
all these possibilities that still exist in September of 62, you have uh, Northern morale is beginning to become shaky over all of the reverses that Union forces are suffering. You can read the letters of Union soldiers. I mean, General John Sedgwick, who becomes corps commander in the Army of the Potomac, he writes a letter right at the beginning of the Maryland campaign that he's convinced the Southern Confederacy is going to be recognized. He doesn't see any possibility that they're going to be able to defeat the Confederates. He thinks their armies are too good. Their generals are too good. The Union can't win this. He's very demoralized after all these defeats. So, I mean, when you have officers like Sedgwick who are that low, you can imagine how some regular citizens are going to be across the North. And Robert E. Lee's trying to exploit that in September of 62 by carrying the war across the Potomac into Maryland because he knows uh, Lee is a very, I think, Lee is underestimated in his understanding of the politics of the war. He recognized early on that the South, the only way the South was going to win their independence was by damaging the morale of the Northern people and turning them against the Republican administration of Lincoln. And that was the way that they might get an armistice or possibly even win their independence. And, and the way you do that is what Lee called heavy victories. And what he meant by that is victories in which he inflicts a lot of damage on the enemy and doesn't take as much. Now, he did win the victories, but they weren't the heavy victories that he described because he lost a lot of men. So he was taking a lot of casualties. Right. But and when he invades Maryland, his army is in just horrible logistical shape. But I think Lee realizes that in war, opportunities don't come when you want them to. They just come. And when they come, you better seize them. You better because they may not come again. You got to seize the moment. He's really, really good at that. And he seizes the moment. And uh, his plan is to carry the war into the north. He doesn't necessarily believe England and France will recognize the Confederacy because he um, he knows that the Confederacy, being a slaveholding republic, and those two countries have abolished slavery, is problematic for them, and will be you know you know, closely debated over there. But he does believe that he can convince the Northern people that the war is unwinnable. And the way he's going to do that is by victories on Northern soil. And that's what's riding on Antietam. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, that, that kind of sets the high drama of this. And obviously we, we, we would, it would take 10 of these episodes to go through the entire book. We won't do that. And we have a link in the show notes for people to pick this up, buy it. Um, you can get it wherever you buy your books, whether that be online or, or in person. Um, I know that they'll be, I'm sure it'll be sold at the Antietam Visitor Center and it'll be in, in Gettysburg. If you're visiting there, most of the bookshops there, I'm sure for the historian and places like that will be carrying things like this. Um, you know, maybe it's a place to take a quick pause come back and then I want to kind of dive into the maybe the historiography sort of high level stuff and and where you fall in McClellan. I know people who know the story well or have read the the Catton-esque uh, interpretations yeah. of this um, have some some opinions on that but we'll do that and we'll come right back here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work and there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be joined by historian Scott Hartwig. We're talking all about his new book, I Dread the Thought of the Place, um, which is a, uh, a in-depth study of uh, the Battle of Antietam in the end of the Maryland campaign. Um, and before we took our break, we were talking about sort of all that that rode on Antietam and uh, the power of this moment and um, what potentially could have gone wrong for the United States. 
um, had the Union Army not prevailed um, uh, on, on the fields outside of Sharpsburg, Maryland. Um, and, you know, I, I think if anybody has visited Antietam or has a, a passing knowledge of this period of the war, um, you will hear people say things like, oh, McClellan, you know, so slow or boy, after Antietam, he didn't do anything. Um, or, you know, it was, it was so disjointed at Antietam. He, you know, what bad leadership he had. Nobody knew what anybody else was doing. And a lot of this goes back to, um, there, there's different, I guess, and you're probably the person to ask, but my understanding is a lot of this kind of goes back to that centennial, um, appraisal of McClellan and, and he comes out as sort of the bad guy in all of this or this, this bumbler, um, and, and a poor leader. Was there a reappraisal? Where do you fall on all of this? I know that there are now some like, uh, you know, hardcore McClellan fans out there who sort of have gone off in the other direction. People love doing that kind of thing. Like if you hate him, I'm going to love him. Right. Um, where do you fall on, on, on George B. McClellan? Yeah, he's, I mean, the Civil War is, I don't know that it's unique, but it is interesting in how it has its heroes and its villains. And, um, you know, the the people who are in the camps on either side will seek out all the evidence that they can that right. makes the person the hero or the villain right. and discredit all the evidence that they find. That yeah, I'm thinking of Longstreet, probably a good example. Longstreet's yeah. a great example. Even Dan Sickles. Um, sure. You know, to a degree, Lee McClellan is a big one. I mean, McClellan's a big one, and it, and and uh, some of the 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 defense of McClellan that has arisen in the last decade or so, I can kind of understand. I mean, if you were a, a guide at Antietam or you were a ranger at Antietam, literally everybody who knows a little bit about the Civil War arrives there, and they're you know the first thing out of their mouth is, "Well, I was McClellan, such a fool or an idiot or a terrible general." And you're like, "Whoa, wait a second. I mean, it was a, so you end up really trying to defend them, and I think um, what you have to do with McClellan is which is hard to do because he's a controversial character i mean but you what you have to try and do is be very objective about him look at him and his generalship objectively and you can't just look at his generalship through the lens of the american civil war you have to look at his generalship through the lens of military history and you have to look at his generalship through the lens of what was a general in that era what what should he know? What could he know? What was he trained to understand? And how did some other generals in that era perform in circumstances that were somewhat similar? So you should look at Winfield Scott in the Mexico City campaign. You should look at George Washington and the campaign that results in uh, uh, Trenton and Princeton. Um, you should look at Wellington in the Peninsula campaign or Napoleon in the Italian campaign. I mean, these are all, and some of these, someone like McClellan could have studied and, and probably did read about. So what yeah, lessons, did. what lessons did he learn from these things? I come down kind of in the middle on McClellan. Um, I don't think he was a great general and I don't think he was a bad general. Um, he was extremely competent in some things. He was extreme. He was amazing in his ability to take literally, literally an army that was not an army. It was just a collection of units that bigger than anything they had ever seen in the United States of America and turn it into a professional army. That is no small achievement. So he creates the army of the Potomac and he instills it with discipline and he builds a staff system that while I think other subsequent generals made the staff system better, so particularly Joe Hooker and George Meade made the staff system better in the Army of the Potomac. Um, you have to give McClellan credit because he's the first guy. He has to create this from nothing. And there's no command and staff college. There's no war college. There's nothing like that. It, you know, you're just, you have to pick these guys from the Rufus Ingalls and the Seth Williams. And you have to know your people. Yeah. And McClellan does seem to know his people. He picks a lot of very good staff officers. The two I just mentioned are going to stay on the staff of the Army of the Potomac for the entire war. I've always felt like McClellan's like 
greatest contribution. I don't know what you think about this, but like his real contribution in my mind, you know, I, I, I'm sort of the same way. I'm sort of in the middle on him in the Maryland campaign in Antietam. But I feel like his real contribution is that he creates the army that goes on to win the war. Um, and that subsequent commanders pick it up and, like you say, they make it better or they um, add value to it or they, they become a little bit more hard-charging and, and, you know, kind of just keep pushing. Um, but they're using the thing that he created. Perhaps that's his greatest contribution. Yeah, he does create the instrument that is ultimately going to help win the war in the East. But I would I give a lot of credit in... Um, the modernization of the army to Joe Hooker, he doesn't get any credit for that because no, he does not. <laughs> he, he gets he gets hammered for Chancellorsville, um, and he's also he he's another guy. He's controversial. Yeah, but is, I mean, that your, is that your next book, a celebration of Hooker? No, no. <laughs> but I mean, he, um, you know, he's the one who really builds a effective cavalry corps. He's the one who builds an effective intelligence service. He has this great statement he, he delivered to the Committee on the Conduct of the War. He said, when I took command of the Army, this is a slam on Burnside and McClellan, he says, we had no more knowledge of the Army of Northern Virginia's strength and organization than if they'd been in China. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. I mean, so McClellan gets, I think he gets good marks for um, his organizational skills. He also gets good marks. Some of the people that he promoted, and and one I would say is Joe Hooker. He saw in Hooker that Hooker was a fighter. Hooker was a was a uh, he, he he was he couldn't keep his mouth shut. He constantly was bad mouthing his superiors to the press, and he did that about McClellan. He bad mouthed McClellan all the time, and uh, during the Peninsula campaign, and McClellan didn't punish him for that. Now, there were some people that McClellan just didn't like. He ultimately turned against Burnside. For un, I don't entirely understand his reasons. I think they were mainly political. Um, but he doesn't turn against Hooker. I mean, and Israel Richardson was another one. He was a division commander in the Army. And Richardson was literally trying to uh, use his political connections to get command of a division of Michigan troops that he wanted to have. And he was pretending to be sick when he wasn't sick. And McClellan ordered him back to the army and he refused to come back to the army. And he was using Zachariah Chandler and these other political powerhouses to protect him. And McClellan never punishes him. He's happy to have him back with the army and, uh, you know, uh, as him as a division commander. So he did have, I think, a good sense of who were some of his better officers and who were people who had had to be watched. Where McClellan, um, I would criticize McClellan, his, the greatest criticism I, criticism I would have of McClellan is um, his intelligence services were terrible. And he and his best pal, Fitz John Porter, who commanded the Fifth Corps, were birds of a feather, and that from very early in the war, both of them believed that the Confederate Army was stronger than it really was. Now, why they believe this to me has always baffled me because McClellan was a railroad man before the war. So he understood what the capacity of the Confederate railroad system was versus the capacity of the Northern railroad system was. He should have had an understanding of the economies of the two uh, areas of the country and the ability to mobilize and equip troops. And this Confederacy just isn't going to be able to mobilize as many troops and equip them as fast as the North can. And it's just, you know, any general at that time period of the war should have been able to understand that. But they were both convinced that they were outnumbered. And I found that in McClellan's headquarters, it seemed to be, and this happened, this happens to other commanders throughout history. The people who are gathering the intelligence know what the boss wants. So this is what we believe at headquarters. The enemy outnumber us. So you give more credence to the intelligence that comes in that says the enemy do outnumber you, and you start to discredit the evidence that says they don't. You're not looking as much for that. Um, the Battle of the Bulge is a good example in World War II where you know we were convinced the Germans were on their heels. They were done. We could thin out our forces in the Ardennes. Nothing was going to happen there. 
And there was intelligence that was coming in saying they seem to be massing their forces there. But that's not what headquarters wanted to believe. The Iraq war is another example where, you know, there had to be weapons of mass destruction and you look for the evidence that says there is. So I think this happened at McClellan's headquarters um, that they believed they were outnumbered. I found really reliable evidence uh, immediately after the Battle of Antietam that there's a long time I went back and forth. I'm like, I don't think McClellan actually really believed this. You know, a lot of historians have gone back and forth on him. But I've come to the conclusion he absolutely did. He absolutely, he believed he fought the Battle of Antietam against superior numbers. And it was a tremendous risk to fight the battle. And does that play into his reticence to, 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 for, the, for the pursuit? You under, Well, yes. And you understand the entire battle and the aftermath of the battle better when you understand that he believed he was outnumbered. So it, the decision to send the Sixth Corps over to the right flank of the army makes perfect sense if you believe that the enemy outnumber me and they might launch an offensive. And Edwin Sumner is telling me the entire right flank is demoralized and could be driven into Antietam Creek and could fall apart, even though you don't think Sumner's a very good general. You believe the enemy outnumber you, and so you're going to err on the side of, we better be careful. So rather than using the Sixth Corps to reinforce the attack that occurs on the center of the Confederate Army at the Sunken Lane, or reinforce Burnside uh, at the, on the left flank, you send the Sixth Corps to protect against what you presume is going to be the Confederate counteroffensive, and to prevent you from being decisively defeated in the battle. So one of the ironies of the battle that's always interest, interested me when I was writing this is that there's all this, everybody piles on Burnside. You know, he's a he's a nincompoop. He didn't know what he was doing. He was, can't think beyond, you know, attacking frontally, et cetera, et cetera. And then McClellan just, just rips him in his second report on Antietam. Well, here's the irony of the whole thing. What reinforcements reinforcements did McClellan send to Burnside during the battle? Zero. No. He sent him none. No reinforcements whatsoever. He was expected to accomplish all of these great things with only the Ninth Corps, which was four divisions, eight brigades. He was supposed to do all of this with eight brigades. Yet, McClellan is the guy who makes the decision to send the whole Sixth Corps to the right flank, and he had made a decision to take two brigades from Morrill's Fifth Corps Division and also send them to the right, but he ended up canceling that order uh, because he realized that he probably was going to have enough men over on the right. So he, he leaves Burnside with minimal resources to accomplish great things. And Jacob Cox, who who commanded the tactical operations of the Ninth Corps. Cox maintained that the original plan was for the attack by the Ninth Corps to be a diversion in favor of the main attack. And if you read McClellan's original report, that is exactly what McClellan says was the plan. And I think what happened during the battle is that um, McClellan became so concerned by the potential of a Confederate counterattack against his right flank that he then realized Burnside had to do more than what he was expected to do with the forces that he had. And um, the other thing that gets overlooked in the battle is that the Ninth Corps performed magnificently. I mean, they smashed Lee's right flank. And you can walk the ground, and it is, it is a tough, tough position to attack. And these guys. I mean, Jacob Cox did a really good job organizing this attack. The only vulnerability was the left flank of the Ninth Corps. And Cox had taken the precaution of checking with the signal station on Elk Ridge or Red Hill behind them. Do you see any you know, substantial forces? And they were like, no. So he was like, okay, my left flank's secure. Right. And then when the attack begins, the signal station signals to Burnside's headquarters, uh-oh, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of rebels. That's A.P. Hill coming up on right, the left. Right. But again, I mean, McClellan, um, you know, he he takes a very cautious course throughout the entire battle. Uh, I mean, uh, he has a battle plan, 
and the battle plan wasn't necessarily a bad plan. The problem with the battle plan was that the only person who knew what the plan was was McClellan. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, in 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 and for people listening, I mean, the 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 great thing about this book that Scott's put together is you can go in depth in all of this. You're going to get this in detail here, um, but uh, I I've always felt you know that that. that and and you see this a lot at different you know talking about the context of civil war history the context of 19th century battles it's not uncommon it seems that not everybody knows the plan right i mean you think yes. about some of the things that lee did um at gettysburg yes and i always think that that's sort of ironic because people complain about Meade having a console of war like oh look at yeah. this guy wanting to know what everybody wants and you know talking it through with everyone and then they're like well, Lee never talked to anybody, right? And <laughs> right. and and but 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 McClellan, it it seems like it's so disjointed. If he had just pulled people together and told them all, what is your sense for that? Why did that? I mean, we know that that's kind of what happened. Why did that happen? I think it happened again. This all goes back to you think you're outnumbered. You don't really know the order of battle of the Confederate Army. You don't really know the strength of the Confederate Army. You're presuming that it's stronger than you. So each move, so McClellan has a plan, right? So this is this is the plan in my mind. I'm not going to share the plan with anybody because once I put the plan in writing, that is the plan, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a move. I'm going to send Hooker across the creek on the afternoon of the 16th of September, and we'll see if Lee's going to stay there. We'll see what's, what's going on. This is a reconnaissance in force. Lee is staying there. Their whole army's there. And Hooker's like, hey, if you don't reinforce me, they're going to gobble me up in the morning, right? So then you go, okay, now I'll make my next move. I'll send the 12th Corps. Now, it's important to keep in mind, the 1st and the 12th Corps, McClellan believed were his two worst formations in the Army. So he keeps the best formations, he thinks the best formations in the Army, on the east side of Antietam Creek. That's the 2nd Corps the 5th Corps, the 6th Corps will be coming up that morning, and the Ninth Corps. Why does he do that? He keeps them on the other side of the creek because he believes he's outnumbered. Lee might take the offensive. He's going to test Lee with the 1st Corps, supported by the 12th Corps. Now, if that attack seems to start developing well, then I'll send the 2nd Corps. Across the creek. So Edwin Sumner, when Sumner got, he was the wing commander that included the 2nd and 12th Corps. He gets the orders late on the night. It was very late on the night of September 16th to send the 12th Corps across the creek. He immediately presumes like, well, it only makes sense for everybody to go across. The 2nd Corps should go across. And he's forbidden across the 2nd Corps. And the next morning, the battle opens and Sumner is right at McClellan's headquarters at the Pry House. And he is waiting there for orders and they won't let him in because they know he's a pain in the neck because he's just, he wants to get into the fight. They won't let him in. And it's not until they start getting intelligence reports from the front that Hooker's attack is actually gaining some ground and doing pretty well that McClellan decides, okay, now I can commit the second court, but not all of it. Yeah, that's fascinating, Scott. Two thirds of it. This idea that not only did they, I mean, just to pause there, not only does he not pull them together, but when one of them wants information, it's like, no, I'm going to actively prevent you from getting. I mean, that that kind of goes that goes to this reappraisal of McClellan. You know, I think going whole hog on McClellan was this amazing general and everything was great. You know, decisions like that, I get yes. it, but that is that is really hard to reconcile with decent leadership. I mean, if you were doing a a leadership tour of Antietam, yes. uh, perhaps keeping people in the dark and actively fighting them from learning information is probably not a good style, and it doesn't really work yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, I could see, like, you know, for example, on July 3rd at Gettysburg, Lee, um, the most that Richard Yule knew, who was, who was supposed to operate against the Union right flank, was that Longstreet was going to attack at daylight and that Ewell was to attack at the same time wherever he saw the greatest opportunity. That type of command and control by Lee makes absolute sense to me. You can't be everywhere. You can't know everything. All Ewell really needs to know is that Longstreet's going to attack at the same time as you. So you are doing mutually supporting attacks. And um, 
course, that didn't work out too well at Gettysburg <laughs> because Longstreet wasn't ready to go. But at Antietam, I mean, it absolutely is true that it's one thing on the defense, not to let everybody know exactly what you're doing. They just know that they're supposed to defend. It's a whole other thing. When you're trying to coordinate attacking formations in a Civil War battle, the more the commanders know, the better off you are. And the less they know, the harder it is for them to know how they fit in and what they should be doing. So he um, he definitely errs in that respect in, in managing the battle. And the other part about McClellan and the Battle of Antietam is that the way you're going to influence a battle, once the battle is, is the forces are engaged, you've committed your forces, the only influence you then have on the battle, you have two things you can influence the battle. One is by your personal presence at some key point on the battlefield. Like if you're a general like Napoleon, that inspire your troops. And McClellan did inspire his men. Sheridan at Cedar Creek. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but the other thing is, the most important one is, is how you commit your reserves. And this is where in the battle, Robert E. Lee shines very brightly because Lee takes a lot of risk, but he's really smart in how he committed his reserves and where he committed them to. And what he ends up doing is that at almost every major point of contact between the two armies, yes, Lee is outnumbered, but not decisively because he concentrates his forces there. So if you read a lot of these diaries and letters from Union soldiers after the battle, a lot of them are like, hey, I mean, the enemy had just as many as men as we did. They may have had more because where they were fighting, there were a lot of rebels because Lee did a good job of concentrating his forces. And um, McClellan gets lucky in this battle in some areas, like the breakthrough at the Sunken Lane was not a design part of the battle. The breakthrough at the Sunken Lane was William French, who had no orders from Edwin Sumner, other than to go in on the left of Sedgwick, and he didn't even know where Sedgwick actually had gone. And he was given no direction whatsoever by Sumner or his staff. He saw Green's division of the 12th Corps lying down behind the hill where the Park Visitor Center is today. And he's like, well, and I could see Confederates around. He didn't know it was Sunken Lane, but he could see some Confederates down in that direction. He's like, well, it looks like where I'm supposed to attack. So he went down that way. And then when Richardson's division came on the field, he has no orders from Sumner. And Richardson marches to the sound of the guns. So he ends up fighting down at Sunken Lane and with no direction whatsoever from their corps commander. And they ultimately break the Confederate line down there and create an opportunity for McClellan, who can observe the whole fight from his headquarters. He had an excellent observation point. But by that point of the breakthrough, he'd already made his decision as to where he was going to commit his reserve, the Sixth Corps. And, you know, a lot of people will write that, well, he had the Fifth Corps, he had this reserve. And he didn't. He, that, I kind of side with McClellan on. You had to be careful where you sent the Fifth Corps because that was your center. And that was the, you know, if so, some sort of disaster did occur, and there weren't that many of them yet. I mean, you had two divisions, and one of those divisions, part of that one division, was sent across the creek at the Middle Bridge. The U.S. regulars part of that was sent across the creek at the Middle Bridge. Um, so, you know, with McClellan, I think he um, he uh, once he's made that decision to commit his reserve, he doesn't really have anything left to take advantage of these opportunities. The Ninth Corps is going to create an opportunity when they really badly damage uh, Lee's right flank and route most of Lee's brigades that are defending his right flank. And then, you know, when this when AP Hill comes on the field. The Ninth Corps is in a vulnerable position. They don't have any sort of support. Right, and no reinforcements. And so, like you said before, that, I mean, they if, they, if they had, it, it probably wouldn't have wouldn't have ended yeah. the way it did. So, I mean, obviously, for people listening who want to dive into all of this, uh, you can see how Scott could write a couple thousand pages easily <laughs> uh, on, on this. Um, before we go, want to be mindful of everybody's time here. Um and your time, because I, I know you're you're getting around to make sure people know about this great book. Um, let's do a couple rapid fire questions that I think people would be interested in hearing about. You do you have a favorite spot at Antietam? Someone's going out. They're going to bring your book. They want to read the first chapter. Where should they sit? 
maybe around the cornfield um, or the the edge of the East Woods cornfield. Very interesting area. It's a great, uh, Antietam is a great trail system. So what I would recommend people do if you really want, if you really want to experience this, hike the trail that goes from the North Woods. There's a parking area there. And you'll go by the Miller Farm. You can follow in the footsteps of the 6th Wisconsin and 2nd Wisconsin of the Iron Brigade. And you'll go up past the cornfield where Battery B, 4th U.S. was, where Hood's Texans charged to and Georgians and South Carolinians. I don't want to forget those guys. And then you'll end up at the far end of the cornfield. Um, that's a great that's a great hike. Do you but there's, a great, there's a great hike at the uh, at the Sunken Lane. And there's a fantastic hike. Up to Tidball's Battery in the at the Middle Bridge, and there's a great hike, the Last Attack Trail and the Snavely's Ford Trail. Those are all really fantastic hikes. Yeah, if you have somebody in your family uh, who perhaps isn't a huge Civil War uh, fan or just is uh, begrudgingly coming along, <laughs> I would encourage the Antietam Creek Trail because it's also just beautiful. Yes. Um, and so you can see the creek and you get to see yeah. nature and all that kind yes. of thing. And then you can see the ford where they crossed and you can cross over the Burnside Bridge. It really is. You're right. I mean, I think, I mean, I love hiking both Gettysburg and Antietam, but... Um, Antietam, I think, has has Gettysburg beat on the trail network and just the interconnectivity of it. It's it's, pretty it's amazing. a great it's a great trail network. I mean, you literally can hike from the northern end of the battlefield to the very southern end of the battlefield and almost never be on roads. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 Um, who's your unsung hero of Antietam? Um, I would say Hiram Dreyer, who was the. Uh, the U.S. Army, he was a, a captain in the U.S. Regulars. He commanded the 4th U.S. Infantry. And when they sent the U.S. Regulars across the Middle Bridge to support the horse artillery that had been sent across the creek under orders from McClellan, George Sykes was the division commander that included all the U.S. Regulars, and he really did not want to send any of his infantry across the creek. He was another one who believed the Confederates had superior numbers they were just waiting to come out of Sharpsburg and crush anybody who came across and they um ultimately send you know not a huge force of regulars across but a substantial force <clears throat> less than a brigade and dryer ended up being the senior officer uh on the uh, west side of the creek and dryer was one of those guys who's forgotten in history but he was a really uh audacious commander and extremely smart and he took full advantage of the tactics that the regulars were very good at they were very good at marksmanship and they were very good at skirmishing and he basically fights the confederates with a skirmish line backed up by parts of the regulars formed in a line of battle but the line of battle regulars never really do any fighting it's only the skirmishers and the skirmishers clear all of the Confederate forces from what I call Cemetery Ridge, which is the ridge north of Cemetery Hill, where the National Cemetery today is located. And I think he would have cleared Cemetery Hill, too, if he'd gotten any sort of support. But what ends up happening is Sykes realizes that Dreyer is way beyond where he thought he was supposed to be and is incensed and sends orders across the creek for Dreyer to withdraw his troops. And Dreyer asks the officer who brings the order, he says, I mean, is there any interpretation in this? And like, no, there's none. You have to withdraw. So Dreyer pulls back. He's accomplished all this, and he lost less than 100 men. It's, it is remarkable. It is yeah. just remarkable what he achieved. Um, he ends up getting a brevet promotion for courage at Fredericksburg, a brevet promotion for courage at Chancellorsville. He's going to miss the Gettysburg campaign because he gets thrown from a horse. And apparently that injured him enough that he never did active field service again in the rest of the war. But um, the whole very little. Play. I mean, if you're at Antietam, that's not a story you you hear about or it's not well interpreted because also the middle bridge is modern now. And so it's when not... I worked on that, when I worked on that chapter, the middle bridge chapter, I thought that that chapter was going to be kind of a dull chapter to work on. I wasn't sure how it was going to make it interesting. And it, that was one of the really exciting, there were a lot of exciting chapters that I worked on, but that one was really exciting because I learned something that I just didn't know. And I think it was a part of a story that had not received 
the credit that it was due. And I think, again, it doesn't receive the credit because Dreyer doesn't take heavy casualties. And a lot of the, the, some of the Confederate sources like D.H. Hill told all sorts of fantasies about what went on over there. They just simply weren't true. Um, and the Confederate forces who were arrayed against a dryer were, I mean, a lot of these guys physically were at the end of their tether and they, they weren't all that well led and morale was not all that good in some of these units, but just the way dryer fought his men was so smart. They just took full advantage of the discipline, the training, the marksmanship of the regulars, and they didn't give the Confederate artillerymen any targets. So you just couldn't stop them. And if you lost your infantry support, the Confederate artillery had to go. Fascinating. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Really a good, interesting. A good unsung hero. Um, I will not ask a ghost question, but I will ask people listening might be curious. You spent your career on Civil War battlefields. Um, obviously, archaeology is done all the time and you've seen finds like that. But on all of your hikes and walks and trails, have you ever just kicked over something and said, son of, you know, son of a what? Uh, there's a... Uh, there's a bullet or there's a piece of a fragment or have you ever come across anything like that? You know, amazingly enough, I only once I, I found a shrapnel ball, probably fired by Battery B 4th U.S. Uh, at Gettysburg. They were doing some work on an irrigation ditch or something like that. And I just looked down. I was with a couple of my cousins and I looked down and there was this shrapnel ball sitting on top of the ground. And amazingly enough, I mean, that is the only thing. I've had people come to me like Boy Scouts who found mini balls on Little Round Top, uh, things like that. But I never found anything. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I've, yeah. I've, I've been on battlefields for years now, and I've, I've never yeah. come across. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I think people think that there's a lot left out there, and I'm sure there is. I know when they were doing the little round top work, everybody was very excited that they actually yes. found a, uh, a a shell. I think it was yes. buried somewhere into the into the earth there. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's my version of the uh, Have you seen a ghost? It's Have you seen a mini ball? Um, <laughs> so what's before we go? This has been really great, and as I said, the, the link is in the show notes. Pick up the book. Pick up both of them. Um, you have your reading cut out for the fall, um, but. Uh, what's next? I mean, how do you, how do you follow up on, probably take a nice little break, but, um, it, you know, where, where do you head next? You keep, I'm, people can't see this cause it's an audio podcast, but he's got about 7,000 civil war books behind him. So, um, you can, uh, you've got your library ready to go to write the next thing. What's next, Scott? Um, nothing as big as these two books. Uh, that's, I, I'm done with huge books. Yeah. I mean, they're just an enormous amount of work. Um, it's possible I might do something Gettysburg related in the next book. Uh, it would not be anything like this. So it's not going to be a, uh, I'm not going to try and tackle the Battle of Gettysburg. It would be more like how we've remembered the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I did, when I worked at the park, uh, we had a, uh, a blog that we did. And I wrote a number of blog posts about things that interested me, like uh, how did the legend start of they were coming to Gettysburg for shoes? Who shot JR? Who shot John Reynolds? It's a fascinating. There's all these guys were coming out of the woodwork saying they shot him. The Barlow Gordon incident, all these things that um, became really popular in the memory of Gettysburg and the historiography of Gettysburg. And I think it would be interesting to explore some of these in depth to um, not do like a 970-page book, but like a 350-page book. Um, and from my experience in working at Gettysburg and interpreting Gettysburg and, you know, how do you, how did we address some of these subjects? So that may be where I go. I also have some other ideas, uh, Civil War related, but um, there'll definitely be another one. No romance novels or anything, though. No, 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 no. That would be fun. I'm not that yeah. good. I'm not that good. The, the, the Dorsey okay. Pender story. <laughs> uh, well, this has been 
uh, just a lot of fun. And um, we should also mention, and there'll be uh, links in the show notes, this and and, and in all the promo materials that we are uh, hosting a um, a book launch and a celebration of uh, this book um, on September 13th in Frederick. Um, and so you can go to preservationmaryland.org and you can pick up tickets and come and meet Scott and get a book and uh, uh, have some barbecue and a, and a drink and celebrate the launch of this on the very night that the Union Army held Frederick during the Maryland campaign. So an, 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 a perfect timing for that. Um, but it's been so much fun. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you, Scott, and uh, looking forward to uh, reading the book, cracking it open and getting this done. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.